Welcome to Encounter, the podcast from the Wolf Institute that gets down and granular with questions of religion and society. I'm Ed Kessler, founder director, and this time we're discussing religion and football. We'll be looking at the World Cup, the old firm derby between Glasgow Rangers and Glasgow Celtic, and how can we avoid Mohamed Salah. And I'm trying to avoid every sporting cliche in the book on this one. Oh, what a stunner! That's a stupendous goal. It's sensational. Well, you take a tap in in these circumstances. And you can see what it means to them. Oh, well, we're focusing on football and I have to declare an interest. I'm a long-suffering Arsenal supporter. Sigh. I watched the Champions League game, Real Madrid-Napoli. Surrounded by Naples fans. Oh wow! Oh, did and, you go? Yeah. Uh, no, no, no. I was oh, watched right, it in Cambridge. Yeah, yeah. Surrounded by yeah. Naples fans. Where did yeah. you watch it? Uh, the Grain and Hop story. Oh, it was yeah. It was it was crazy. I've never watched a game in that levels of intensity in in the UK. They are good, Naples. They're very. I mean, that, that's the other thing. How Real Madrid won the semi-final and the final through completely ridiculous goal goalkeeping errors. <laughs> Just pure chance. My guests today. Miriam Wagner here in her capacity as Director of Research at the Wolf Institute, not because she was born and brought up in Germany. Jessica Tierney-Pierce, student scholar from the famed football country New Zealand. And Rodrigo Garcia Velasco from Spain. Let's go back a while. Sport was originally part of religious worship. The original Olympics were physical contests in a religious festival to honour Zeus. Today, many Christian organizations like the YMCA promote sport as a source of moral instruction, but have also been to football matches between Jewish teams, both of whom believe they have been chosen by the Almighty. Misogyny, repression, or a helpful release from emotional complexity. Well, let's get on with the game. Is sport, particularly football, a religion? Miriam. I think it's certainly comparable to religion. There are aspects that are certainly part of religions too. The complete submission that we see in some of the football fans is comparable to the way that people submit in mosques, for example, or even in, in churches. The fact that we have icons, we have complete icons that people are worshipping, Musala being one of them. The ritualistic aspects, the group dynamics, and I think it's not only when people uh, watch football, but also when they play. I, for example, I played in a in a Sunday group, and for me that was the most important date of of the week. Every Sunday, at two o'clock, I would go to that pitch and I would play football in the same way that some people may go to church or may go to a mosque or to, to a synagogue. So I think both in playing or in watching football, we, we certainly see religious aspects coming through. So football as a, a day of Sabbath, a submission day. Rodrigo, do you see football as a sort of an act of submission? Certainly, from the point of view of the discussion, for, for instance, I think it's, I find it quite interesting that it's, um, it's a way of suspending uh, rational discussion in some ways, uh, in which was, to me, sim uh, seems similar to some forms of religious identity. So, uh, for me, for example, the question of whether Sergio Ramos injures Mo Salah or not deliberately, in, deliberately in the Champions League final. This is it's an existential question. Exactly. <laughs> Which goes beyond uh, where I can rationalise. Okay, football as irrational, Jessica. Is, is, is it wholly irrational? I don't think it's wholly irrational. I think thinking about football as a religion is, is an interesting question because 
football definitely fulfills some of the functions that religion has traditionally fulfilled in people's lives, particularly creating a community of people who come together at a particular time to talk about a, a particular issue. Whether it has a divine aspect of, of religion is, is, is not so true. But it's interesting as from a historical perspective to think about this because often religion and sport have been presented as antitheses of each other by, by um, particularly sort of in a, in a Christian context by bishops who say that people's going to sporting events are creating other problems in a secular context. So. And yet at the same time, I mean, this tension between religion and sport and religion and football, you see the Church of England actually encouraging uh, sporting activities, don't you, as a, as a means of social cohesion. Yeah. Um, so there is, there is this coming together. I mean, fundamentally, sport, it, sports, football, so it serves a human desire, like it, it, we're hungry for something and it brings us together, doesn't it? In a way that going to a place of worship brings us together. I, th I think there's an element of communion, mm -hmm. uh, of feeling part of, of, of a crowd or something beyond you. That is, it, it's really difficult to explain, particularly on TV, I think, watching a derby. Live. So physically being in the ground is so different than watching it on television. Yeah, absolutely. And is it a more a religious experience being present rather than being... I mean, if you're watching the game you're in with a group of people in a pub or in a, at home, is that a different experience than being in the stands? It's absolutely different because the, when you're actually in the stadium, you, the soundscape is so different, right? You really feel like you're in a cathedral of sports everyone shouting around you. I mean, the, the feeling, even when you walk by a stadium, you don't even have to be in there. Just hearing a crowd of, you know, a few thousand shout unisono, I mean, that is something really, really intense. And that really goes, I think it goes extremely deep. It sort of touches parts of us that cannot be sort of rationally be, you know, discovered otherwise. I remember watching uh, England play Scotland and, and at the end of the game when England beat Scotland, everybody sang football's coming home. And having 80 or 90,000 people sing this ballad, it was, it, it was just so uplifting. But there's also a, 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 an element where you need the enemy, don't you? You need the other, you know? You've got to have the devil on the other side, you know? Ramos, for example, if I'm a Liverpool supporter. Um, what, what is that about that need? That, does that add to the religious experience, Jess, that you have a, you know, the, you know, you almost hate the opposition? Yeah, I mean, I think so. I think this, the separation between watching something on TV and watching it in a stadium is, is really interesting. Watching it on television doesn't necessarily separate you from that community. So as a, as a Newcastle fan, I don't get to go to watch Newcastle very often. But if I'm watching them on TV and even when they lose a game, the traveling fans are singing for two hours after the game finishes. I still, I'm always very proud to be a Newcastle fan when I see that, you know, they're not throwing things on the pitch and they're not abusing people. They're just there usually with their shirts off chanting, even though they've lost the game. But I think as a Newcastle fan as well, actually this, this enemy aspect is, is really interesting because often at Newcastle games, particularly when Sunderland are in the same league, you will have a whole cheer from around St. James's Park, but that's because someone has just found out that Sunderland have lost 5-0 down the road or something. So I think, yeah, I think it, it is a really, really important part is to have sort of not only the opposition, but also the, these other enemies that exist within the game. It's like tribalism, isn't it? Very I much, mean, yeah. you know, in Spain, what, what are the tribal aspects of Spanish La Liga? Um, yeah, the, I mean, in Spain, it's, it's interesting because it's, it's changed over time. So uh, it used to be more regional based. So in, in Madrid, the Real Madrid Atletico uh, derby was always the big game. 
and it was a it was a game a clash between the working classes and the regime the Francoist regime um, it was between north and south but Spain has changed a lot uh, and since democracy the discourse has become much more about Real Madrid versus Bar Barcelona. So it's less, it's less religious and more regional and communal. It's, it's certainly political and it's uh, Spanish politics are a lot about a, a regional identity. So in, you ha also have the Basque country, the, the, the derby between, between Bilbao and Real Sociedad from, from San Sebastian, and the really, really big derby, the biggest derby in Spain, which is Real Betis and, and Sevilla football club in Seville. And that is absolutely mental game. But nowadays it's become more, much more, uh, particularly outside, about Real Madrid versus Barcelona. And this has huge political connotations. And to the extent, I mean, speaking, we were saying about suspending rational judgment, I'd rather Barcelona lost than Real Madrid <laughs> won anything. I'm sure you're not the only one, Miriam. Well, I'm supporting a third league uh, East German football team, Karlsheis Jena, because that's the, uh, the town I was born in and the town I supported as a, as a child. And uh, we have a big derby with uh, a town which is 50 kilometers away, Erfurt. And it's, 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 it's deadly. It's as passionate as any derby in the world. And, you know, I can rationalize it and I can say, you know, these are all East German teams. I should support them all. But in my heart, you know, <laughs> it just, I mean, there's so much antipathy. We don't even mention, you know, in a normal context, the name of that town. We say the, the town that cannot be named. And at the same time, we know very well that the derbies are what brings in the money, because when the derbies are on, the stadiums are sold out. And there's actually a lot of mourning at the moment because the other team is going down from the third league. So while there's a bit of schadenfreude that, you know, they're going, at the same time, we know exactly that now if the other's gone, it's only going to be half the fun. Let's bring it into the religious dimension, though, because we're skirting around a bit. And I'm thinking in particular when clubs are associated with religions rather than with the locale. Um, in London, of course, Tottenham Hotspur are traditionally known as a Jewish team. Um, they've been associated with the Jewish community and supporters call themselves the Yids. Uh, Ajax also in Holland are known as the Yids. And um, I think we've seen those sorts of insignia and I, uh, for the, the listeners, I circulated the label of Ajax's the Yids, which is quite aggressive. We'd never use the term the Yids. It, I'm Jewish and it feels uncomfortable, but yet you have fans shouting for the Yids. Is it anti-Semitic? It seems to be sort of more of a reclamation of a term. And I think if, if just like with any term like this, if, if the group itself is reclaiming it, then, it, then it's not anti-Semitic anymore, such, is it's, it? I mean, well done, Jessica, stepping in there, because it's not an easy question, right? Um, and I think there is a bit of an insider-outsider. So for the insiders to call themselves the Yids, um, it, it makes it kind of acceptable. If it's the outsider, I mean, as a Jewish Arsenal supporter, you know, and as the former chief rabbi, Jonathan Sachs was an Arsenal supporter. You know, there's the irony that you have sort of, you know, a lot of Jews actually supporting Arsenal, but Tottenham are known as the Yids. And I remember as a kid going to Arsenal and some of the language was really problematic when it came to Arsenal-Tottenham games in terms of anti-Jewish and anti-Semitic chanting, which for the most part has gone. And David Baddiel, you know, who is this Jewish comic, and on his Twitter, he just has Jew, 
has talked a lot about this and that the language of yids is, is, is a problem. Um, so how do we deal with that today? I mean, you know, um, not just uh, uh, Tottenham, but, you know, Glasgow Rangers and Glasgow Celtic, you know, there's the sort of sectarian divide there. Has, has anyone been to a Rangers Celtic game? I went last season, a friend of mine, uh, a Jewish actually, Celtic supporter took me to a Celtic Rangers game and I was shocked that the, the chanting is still so sectarian. Um, and do you remember that moment when Gascoigne many years ago was playing the flute when he joined Rangers without really knowing that this represented sort of, uh, you know, anti-papist or anti-Fenian um, imagery. So we do have this in football and the question is what do we do with it? Should we ban it? Or is it just part of it? Well, actually, if you just look at it from an anthropological or maybe historical angle, um, you could always go back to David Nuremberg, who said that small rituals of violence actually um, stop bigger, uh, sort of bigger violence of happen from happening. So in a way, you could see that these small clashes are quite useful to let off steam between different communities, to reduce existing tensions in order to provide, uh, to prevent greater violence, I think. And who's David Nirenberg? Because he David wrote Nirenberg, he's, Yes, book, he's a. He? Actually, I think Rodrigo is probably more sort of a, 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 a better person to talk about him. He's a historian of Spain who's written uh, about medieval Spain a lot. Yes, he is at the University of Chicago. He wrote a book called, a very famous book called Communities of Violence. Um, and he, he tries to help uh, nuance the discussion around the rise of the Inquisition the forced conversions in, in medieval Spain of uh, the Jewish, Jewish forced conversions into Christianity and eventually this narrative of the expulsions that has been so prevalent. So these little, little acts of violence, they, they, they preempt bigger acts of violence because That's of the flawed serious. human condition. <laughs> I mean, do you relate to that? I mean, I, I have to admit that on the football pitch, if the referee makes the wrong decision, I'm the first one to be you know, shouting at him. I remember taking my daughter, Ellie, when she was very young to Cambridge United. And Cambridge United were like in the third round of the FA Cup. It was a big thing. I mean, they're not a very good team. It's a big thing. And the referee made some bad decision. I stood up, referee, da, 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 da. Poor old Eddie burst into tears. You know, daddy, how could you say that? You know, So we do get into a different place. It's that transcendental move, um, that transcendental, transcendental shift uh, into a, a very different place. But as well as being a sort of source of division, like Arsenal Spurs or Chelsea Spurs or Rangers Celtic, there are also elements where football actually brings people together. Um, last year, of course, we had this visit by Hassan Al-Fawadi, uh, from Qatar, who are hosting the, the Qatar World Cup. And, and he argued, of course, that football was a kind of convivencia. You were there, Jessica, weren't you? You wrote about it. Was it convincing to you? I think that, yes, of course, football does bring people together. I think particularly the World Cup can bring people together. Often it is mired in controversy for reasons not related to the game itself. But um, regardless of all of that controversy during the month that the tournament is happening, it, it definitely creates this often global collectiveness because, because there are people in, from so many different places representing so many different countries and, and watching all over the world. So I suppose it's this argument that sort of football has no boundaries, no religious boundaries. Mm -hmm. um, and, I, and, and of course, we will make our predictions at the end of this show, of course. Mm -hmm. um, but um, do you accept, Rodrigo, that 
Um, football brooks no division between religions and cultures and colors. Is this something you accept or is it a bit kind of romanticized? Um, I certainly agree that it, it has its own language and that that doesn't know any cultures or religious denominations. The bull speaks, right? Um, I, I'm not totally convinced that football as, as an institution, as a tournament, uh, doesn't know of cultural boundaries. I mean, I, at, the, at the heart of the, of the World Cup uh, and the creation of these international uh, uh, sports events like the Olympics uh, was the desire to unite, to unite the world around the European uh, uh, sphere. In, in, it was a colonial, part of a colonial so movement. Football as a sort of, as, as a, as so, almost a form of imperialism. It was a form of imperialism. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So in that sense, it does know of, 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 of a certain cultural baggage, which is very much centered around Europe or the West. Um, and it, it reinforces the cultural predominance of, of, the, of the West. And that's why I think it's been a try, uh, they've been trying to export it elsewhere because with globalization now it's become more important to include uh, different regions of the world in this project. I think we're getting to half time. Let's take a break. You're listening to Encounter, a podcast from the Wolf Institute. While the panelists eat their halftime oranges, you can check out our Facebook page, facebook.com slash wolf institute, or send us an email with your thoughts to encounterpodcast at wolf.ac.cam.uk. Now back to the show. Welcome to the second half. We ended with the question of imperialism from Rodrigo. And I wonder if we can sort of talk about how the World Cup transforms nations uh, and the way that the London Olympics transformed London in 2012. That was over Ramadan. Well, the thing is, we've seen two very, very different experiences, for example, in the World Cup in France in 1998, where you had this 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 team with you know people of all color and then there was this hope that this would actually reunite France and it would change France but there was great disappointment afterwards because they still felt you know the same sort of racial discrimination in everyday life and the same discrimination on the basis of religion um, in Germany in 2006 the experience was very different I think um, the team that emerged had so many Turkish players and so many play players uh, you know, who, who, who were black that I think for the first time there was a real discussion of what it means to be German. And for the first time through the team, through the national team, people really accepted uh, you know, Germans of color and uh, Germans with Turkish origin as part of, of, of Germany. It really had a, a lasting effect. Um, and we see that even now in the, in, in, the, in, in the migrant crisis that we had in the last years, the Turkish community are seen as, as a real part of Germany, whereas you, know, you have a new other. So we not just need some, I think, Syrian refugees playing in the German team <laughs> to change things around. But I mean, I, I've, as I said, I've played a lot of weekend football and I think we've had people um, there from Iran playing together with people from Israel, play, playing with people from Palestine. And I think Football is really the only arena where this can happen, where people can gather these positive experiences together over the course of an hour or, or two Or even hours. watching a game. You know, if, if, if there's a Classico match, then you can find in the, the streets of Jerusalem people watching the game and stopping for a moment from, you know, worrying about the tensions and the conflict and everything else and just focusing about the conflict on the pitch. 
Um, what about this? Is this issue of um, the narrative of football? Because there is a certain amount that the, the big sponsors and FIFA want to put up about the the football as this uh, you know this this perfect game. But in reality, you know, there are there's so much money involved. There are these dirty tricks. There's corruption. There are real questions about you know drug use. I mean, when Arsene Wenger um, talked about the problem of drugs uh, in the national game, FIFA sent a whole um, team of um, uh, drug officials just to Arsenal, to nobody else, just to Arsenal. It was a kind of lesson, you know, a warning. Don't talk about that. How much of, of that is a, the, the game is, is corrupted today? I think FIFA sending drug officials to Arsenal had absolutely nothing to do with drug use and absolutely everything to do with FIFA, I think. Obviously, this has been an enormous scandal over the last couple of years and, and everyone will be very aware that, that theoretically FIFA is not now as corrupt as it was two years ago. But but it's theoretical, right? We, we can't know that. And I don't think we will know that for a long time until we really see tournaments that are allocated to countries without this corruption being involved. I mean, the next two tournaments, the one that's about to happen and the one that will happen in four years' time, we all know that there was inherent corruption involved in those bids. And I think until we get past Qatar 2022 and, and move forward, we, we can't really know what's, what's going to happen. I think part of the problem is that... Um, the the governing bodies that dominate football these days, UEFA, FIFA, they are supranational bodies uh, that uh, answer to no one, are very obscure. Uh, and in fact, that's part of the issue that real football happens in the local community. Uh, that's where, when you address the tensions, the ethnic tensions, the uh, political crisis like in Spain or whatever, um, that's where you you, you you, you can really address issues about corruption and about money in football um, uh, and have a more moral approach to football. I think that that's the problem, the, one of the big problems with these uh, international tournaments is that they, they don't have roots. Well, there, there's an organization trying to do this at the moment, right? There's, a, there's another Football World Cup well, happening in World London Cup, right now. Um, it's the the CONIFA, which is the Confederation of Independent Football Associations tournament, which is a, a run by volunteers and um, and is not for profit. And and this is happening to sort of to coincide with the World Cup and and the fact that it's happening in so that this organisation is made up of members who are people who identify as something that is not the nation to which they belong. So, for example. If you are Tibetan and you want to play international football under FIFA regulations, you have to play for China. And obviously a lot of Tibetans would not want to play for China. But it's not just these sort of antagonistic, perhaps, or, 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 or sort of separatist, potentially separatist um, groups of people. It's also just people who identify in a different way. So Yorkshire is a member of CONIFA as well. So, but, but, you know, the, I would imagine most people in Yorkshire aren't trying to currently separate from the United well, I Kingdom. I don't know. I don't know. You spent a few years in Yorkshire. It wouldn't, wouldn't surprise me. Um, what, we, we haven't touched on it yet, but we have to, which is Mo Salah. Um, uh, because I think the, the, you know, you talked about the German team being much more uh, diverse and pluralist with, with, with Turks and with other 
German nationals who are now sort of regarded as, as full Germans. Um, but this guy has had such an impact. When I was in the Middle East watching Arab TV, Al Arabiya and various, I mean, they were, I don't know what they were saying, but it was all about Mo Salah, you know? Um, and what's that, what's that chance? They had Liverpool supporters, didn't we, David? David, our, our producer, we had Liverpool supporters sitting in the mosque. Is, sitting in the mosque is where I want to be. If it's good enough for him, it's good enough for me. In a Scouse accent. <laughs> Oh, that's fantastic. So it does show what can be achieved. Is it just ephemeral or is that, would it, would it make a difference? I don't think it's ephemeral. Um, I mean, it's tied in with so many other issues. For example, globalization, the way that football has evolved over the last 40 years. I uh, subscribed to a German, very hip uh, football magazine, and there was a story about Liverpool supporters in the 80s. And for me, it was like watching a different tribe. I mean, the way that everyone was working class, everyone had only one good suit and then one football outfit. Um, it ties in with, with, with issues, you know, like poverty and, and uh, you know, sort of the current trends of our time. In the time. 80s? In the 80s? Really? Was that in Germany or, or here? Because I remember following Arsenal in the 80s and uh, being treated um, in Italy when I went to see Arsenal play uh, Inter Milan. Uh, we were treated like animals. And of course, the reaction was to act like animals. Um, but it wasn't, it, th these weren't working class, you know, they, we, I don't think it was across all different classes. Maybe earlier times might have been working class, but certainly in the 80s following Arsenal, it was, um, you know, it was very tribal. It was quite violent. It was very male. Um, and it was unpleasant. Yes, that was, that was the 80s. I mean, Heisel and uh, yeah. Yeah, all, the, all the other strategies, uh, yeah. But I think there's this point, isn't there, about, you know, again, he brings it back to, to, to violence, but the, you know, this, this tension amongst football supporters, it, 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 has it gone away or is it just lurking beneath the surface? Have you been to any matches, Jess, where the, you've sensed any, that antagonism about colour or, or race or gender or religion? I, I don't tend to go to matches, um, but I think that these are, of course, these things haven't gone away. I mean, what you're talking about in the 80s is sort of a, a bigger part of, of people's perception that English fans were hooligans, and, and but we're seeing this now, that, that you know, we saw this during the Euros, that, that Russian fans still sort of have this perception of English football fans being hooligans and, and deliberately targeting English fans as a, as a consequence of that. And, and it does bring, bring out this violence. And, and no, I, do, I mean, we see all the time that racism has not gone away and sexism has not gone away. I mean, there are still no openly gay footballers in the Premier League. That's remarkable, isn't it? Regardless That's of remarkable. all of the big, you know, the Rainbow Laces campaign and all of these other things which are happening to, to try and create an environment where, where this is okay, which of course it is. And so Justin Fashioner was really the only one who ever came out and look at that story. Exactly. And, and yes, I mean, well, and there I mean, are... We had some German player. I mean, who's come out. Yeah. Mm. yeah. But, but yeah, I mean, they come out afterwards but they they're not they don't come out while they're playing what do you think about the symbols though you know we, we were talking about that in the break that now it's so common for people to come onto the football pitch and cross themselves or to to, to open their palms and then kind of wash their face in the islamic uh, prayer i mean i think it's amazing i i think it's one of the only moments where you will see christians and muslims and sometimes jews like because in europe we there aren't that many jewish players playing in but at least all being in a place and praying together on a football pitch before a game yeah, in different ways yeah. and and nobody think nobody it's not controversial it's you have a stadium full of people some of whom particularly in in particular parts of, of this country at least would never have spoken to a muslim in their life not being 
not not having any kind of problem, even though they might sort of at a at a different level with with the fact that this is what is happening. And, and Mo Salah is an, is a really interesting example of this. It's the some of these players are a way for for ordin for for people to get closer to to people from different cultures and different religions that they might not ever get to do on a day. It's real encounter, isn't it? it like the name really of this broadcast. Is. is it the same as Spain, Rodrigo? Do you with with the footballers are they also more open about sort of the the the, the, the um, uh, crossing themselves or? I wouldn't want to be always the cynical person. Surely not. Uh, You're Spanish. But... You can't be cynical. They're great <laughs> footballers. No, but in Spain. Uh, uh, there is a real stigma still uh, with uh, with other religions. Well, n not so much a stigma, but an, a lack of interaction, let's say, because of uh, the history of isolation of Spain under Franco. And, and so we're catching up. Uh, and you do see players, um, Muslim players particularly, Praying on, on the like pitch, because I, in, in the UK you think of Salah, you think of Meza Erzo. So we, we had we had a very uh, widely uh, announced case a few years ago with Mamadou uh, Mamadou Diara, player who, who played for Real Madrid, uh, and 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 the press was outraged because Diara was uh, was uh, going through Ramadan, uh, and and this was in March when Real Madrid was still in the Champions League. And, and the press was just complaining about whether he would be able to uh, perform in his holding midfield position to, up to the standard. And there was no sensitivity with, with the uh, religious beliefs. But that's very interesting player. because I know the German Turkish players, they always suspend Ramadan. So it's mm -hmm. never a problem because they suspend it for the match days and then make it up later. Yes, so like that's a, never a, a special dispensation, yeah, isn't there? Yeah. yeah, yeah. But it's interesting how the press picked up on that as a negative, you know, whereas here I think actually that is being embraced in the UK, that the, the diversity on the pitch. I think it is more, more, more positive. I remember with the, the, the London Olympics, um, which took place over Ramadan as well. There was, uh, that woke up, I think, many people in Britain to the, the, the relationship between religion and, and sport. Um, and the fatwas were issued to allow Muslims to, uh, to participate. So we have Christian players crossing themselves. We have the washing of the face. I, I've never seen a Jewish player do anything. Have you? No, I haven't. And I, I, I mean, the only example I can think of, there was a, a goalkeeper um, for Hibernian, um, a Jewish goalkeeper for Hibernian who wanted to um, take off Yom Kippur because it was a, a, a take the, get the day off. And, and he was given the day off. Um, so I think it's more about missing the odd game. <laughs> Um, there was a big debate, of course, in the Jewish community when football moved to Friday nights, because a lot of Jews watch football, right? And what are we going to do on the Sabbath with the football match on Friday night? So I think uh, lots of people drew the curtains and watched the match. That's, that's what I think probably happened, the very pragmatic religion of, uh, of, of Judaism. We, we, we talked about football and religion and religious identity, but actually isn't it fundamentally kind of pagan? Isn't there kind of a superstitious element to it? People wearing certain things on certain days of the week and so on? I mean, I, th I think yes, to an extent. I think definitely some players, when they score a goal and they pray to God, are not praying. That is religion for them. That's part of their religion. I think when footballers come onto the pitch and pick up a piece of grass and eat it, that that's definitely superstitious behaviour. But then you have sort of superstition, which I think sits somewhere in the middle of that. So historically, for example, some of the um, sporting sort of overlaps with, with religion in a historical context come from... In, in ancient Rome, we the, some of the examples of popular religion that we have are, are curse tablets. So, um, curse tablets can be, you know, please 
whichever deity cursed Bob because he slept with my wife and I now hate Bob. But they can also be, please curse the green chariot racing team and don't let them win the chariot races this weekend. Right, and so, it's so a, in, it, you're, you're invoking the almighty to influence the match. Exactly. And so this has been going on for, for a very long time. And, and there is definitely still an element of, of superstition in, in football now. But when you hear people say, God almighty at the football match, it's not normally because you want to curse the opposition. It's because your team have passed the ball to the wrong player, right? That's right. This is a whole different level on which religion and, and football sort of intersect with each other, is that this level of practice now, the World Cup, we can't avoid it. We can't avoid it. We have a, a global um, a collection of um, participants on this podcast from some of the strongest football nations and one or two of the weak ones, including England, of course. Um, and um, let's put it, cards on the table. Who is going to win the World Cup? I think it's going to be Brazil, France or Germany. Safe bets from yes. Miriam. Barger. But it, you know, we haven't seen an exception. I mean, the Euro is different. In the Euro, Denmark can win. So you don't think Brazil got But chance. in the World Cup, uh, it has to be one of the big nations. That's the way it's been forever. Ever. So, forever. Yes. Okay, Rodrigo. I'd think it'd be it'd be a great story if Belgium managed to to, to win it. Because of the history, history and, 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 and... And also because given. Rodrigo actually drew that nation uh, <laughs> in the sweepstake. Uh, yes, that might be a factor. <laughs> but I do think that uh, the, the religious, the, the speaking of religious and ethnic diversity, is an incredibly uh, uh, di uh, diverse bunch and uh, an exceptional amount of world-class prayers. Uh, so it would be... It would be really interesting to see how, how well they do. And yet you came into this conversation expressing a lot of cynicism about the World Cup. You almost said to me, I don't care who wins the World Cup. But actually, you do care, don't you? I care more about the Champions League, but we are, my team already won it. <laughs> <laughs> ah, that's a question. If Real Madrid played Spain, who would win? Uh, probably Spain. Really? Yeah. Would you have to clone the Real Madrid yes, players who are also on the Spanish team? Yeah. All right, don't get complicated. There's always one troublemaker. Okay, Jessica, who's going to win the World Cup? I think on a purely footballing level, I think it will be Brazil. I think they have a team full of number 10s attacking midfielders like the team in the 70s, which blew everyone away. And you I think they're going to be exciting at heart, aren't yeah. you? Really, really. Well, they think it's all over and... It is now. I'm Ed Kessler. My thanks to my guests, and none of them was called Gary, uh, Miriam Wagner, Re Rodrigo Garcia Velasco, and of course, Jessica Tierney Pierce. Next time, religion and music, a big subject. You can follow us on Facebook, email your thoughts and questions to encounterpodcast at wolf.cam.ac.uk or leave a review on iTunes. I think you play the blinders today, Miriam. <laughs>